Welcome to the latest edition of the Carmichael Governance Podcast. I'm Dermot Carbui, CEO of Carmichael. Carmichael is a charity that provides supports to other Irish charities, particularly in the area of governance. You can find details of what we do and a wide range of free resources on our website. That's carmichaelireland.ie. You can also find previous editions of our governance podcast on our website or on your favourite podcast platform, be that SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Acast. This podcast is different from our normal podcast format. It features Louise Thompson, who's head of policy for nonprofits at the ICSA, the Chartered Governance Institute in London. Louise gave the keynote speech at the recent Good Governance Awards night in the National Concert Hall. Louise provides an overview of developments in governance in the charity sector in England and Wales. We think you'll find it of interest. I want to introduce our keynote speaker, Louise Thompson, Head of Policy for Nonprofits in the ICSA, the Chartered Governance Institute. I'm glad I've it written down. Um, but uh, most people think it's the Chartered Secretary Association, but they've done a rebranding and now also have the Chartered Governance Institute as part of the tag. But Louise is someone that I've been following for quite some time on LinkedIn and Twitter. You know, when you come across somebody that you see, that, that person is on the ball or that has some very good comments and you get the link through to some articles they recommend. And I found them very, very helpful and very thought-provoking. So last year, we were doing other research on the board packs, and I, I reached out to Louise, because the ICC have done a lot of work in this area, and I found she was absolutely wonderful, helpful, and informative. So earlier this year, when I asked Louise to be the keynote speaker at tonight's work, I was absolutely delighted, and she accepted my invitation. So I actually finally got to meet Louise in person today. And I'm certainly maximizing the opportunity to have Louise here in Dublin, because already we've recorded a podcast on our Carmichael Governance series on board ethics and behaviours. We'll be out shortly. I think it's a very good one. And we have other podcasts if you want to look at that. But she also, in addition to doing the podcast early this morning, uh, the afternoon I dragged her along to do a fantastic workshop in Articox with 80 attendants at NZ and that on board ethics and values and, and culture. So fantastic. So... It is my great pleasure to introduce the keynote speaker tonight. So please give a warm welcome to Louise Thompson. I'm blushing. I don't deserve that. I really don't. I'm absolutely flabbergasted to be invited to talk to you. I absolutely assumed that you must have got the wrong Louise Thompson when you asked me to speak. So I'm absolutely delighted to be here and be able to celebrate the good work that you as trustees and charities and those supporting charities do in not just in trustee week but in every week of the year to help make a difference to the societies that you're out there to support. So good luck to everyone. I hope it's a fantastic night, and I hope even those that don't actually go away with the prize go away with the recognition that they deserve for the hard work that they put in. I was asked to just give an update on what's happening in the UK in terms of charity governance, and there's an awful lot going on. Governance is never really far from the headlines, and the negative media coverage isn't restricted to charities but we have poor governance stories relating to the corporate sector, to sports bodies, to the NHS, to anything, really. Good governance doesn't make headlines, unfortunately, but poor governance certainly does. And I thought it was worth just to take a step back and just remind ourselves where governance came from and what good governance was meant to do. So the original definition of governance has changed, and we have to go back to 1992, and the definitive definition of governance, 
which was articulated in the Cadbury report. And for those of you that are around my age, you'll be aware that Cadbury came out because of various corporate scandals relating to Maxwell, BCCI, Polypec. For those of you that are a lot younger than me, Google it. Go and have a look. So the key words in that 1992 definition were talking about the board directing and controlling, providing checks and balances to the senior management team and the executive. However, more recent versions of good governance in the UK Corporate Governance Code have moved to strengthen the importance of entrepreneurialism, of the long-term sustainability of an organisation, and of also the importance of cultural values in that entity and the decisions that are made. So governance now, in the eyes of politicians and the public, is expected to, A, prevent or sanction poor boardroom behaviours, to promote the public's interests, such as reducing income inequality, and also to restore faith in big business. That is a hell of a job that governance has got to do, especially when you have a conversation with the man in the street or the person in the pub, and they say, what do you do? I work in governance. They look at you blankly. We have to explain what governance is before we can expect people to understand how it makes an impact. Now, some of that expectation on good governance in the corporate world has moved across into the charity sector as well. The charity governance failures that have been highlighted in the press focus on issues such as executive pay, fundraising practices, corporate partnerships, safeguarding, values, culture and ethics. And those media stories have also highlighted a distinct disconnect between the public's understanding of how modern charities are actually run and also an increasing demand that charities behave as the public expects them to. It can be really difficult to understand what the public expects of us when they don't speak with one voice and we're expected to anticipate their needs and their demands and meet them. Quite rightly, the behaviour of some charities has exposed the entire sector to scrutiny about what people believe is the right way for charities to behave. Simply doing good is not enough anymore. We have to demonstrate that we are not only doing things right, but we're doing the right thing. In response to many of the governance failures that get um, headlined in the press, the knee-jerk reaction is for increased regulation. And some of the scandals, maybe I shouldn't use that word, some of the failures that we've had in the charity sector have resulted in a number of regulatory pushback and encroachment. So to the reaction of fundraising practices and the suicide of the poppy seller that you might have heard of in the UK, we had the introduction of the fundraising regulator. And this was called our last chance saloon to get our house in order before legislative regulation came in to make us be better at our fundraising practices. The Charities Act 2016 introduced a raft of measures to close some loopholes in the Charity Commission's armoury, but also introduced new powers to remove trustees for misadministration, mismanagement, and one I'm still to get my head round, bringing the sector into disrepute. We also had the House of Lords report, which was a bit of a state of the sector overview of where we are. It was very positive for the work that the sector did, but it also recognised that trustees really need a lot more help to be able to fulfil their legal duties and meet the demands that are being placed upon them. 
Like you and every other sector, we have been dealing with the data protection fallout of GDPR. We think it's over, but we know it's not. There's more to come. So it's working out where that's going to come from, how to protect ourselves so we don't fall into that trap. With regards to the overseas development charity failures and safeguarding, we've had our de Department for International Development push back on raising our standards and safeguarding and having more stringent requirements on our grants and contracts to demonstrate that we're actually taking seriously the beneficiaries' needs and protecting their needs when we're out there doing good. And another side of that fallout has been the enhanced serious incident reporting of the Charity Commission. And that has caused a fair amount of confusion in the sector because initially we thought it was about safeguarding and protecting vulnerable people. But actually the Charity Commission's taken it wider and almost any adverse incident should be reported to the Charity Commission that could damage your reputation. It's a really hard thing to understand as a trustee. I've been in trustee meetings and I sat there and thought, do we need to be reporting this? Is it really that bad? And if I don't and the Charity Commission come back, it will be a lot worse. So there's some real thorny issues around what we should be reporting and when in terms of those serious incidents. Since the 2016 Act, the Charity Commission has been exercising those newfound muscles and removing trustees for mismanagement and maladministration, but not for bringing the sector into disrepute yet. And also, the Charity Commission has a new strategy, puts public trust and confidence firmly at the front of their work. And interestingly, this is getting a lot of pushback from sector commentators, saying, actually, is that the role of the Commission? How can you navigate public opinion when it moves so quickly and so fluidly. The eagle-eyed amongst you will have noticed that I didn't mention Kids Company in there and the fallout from that. And that's because we still don't know what that fallout is. We're still waiting for the insolvency service to come back with the court case as to what their findings are. But whatever those findings are is going to have a big impact on those charities that are established as charitable companies limited by guarantee. So while regulation goes some way to improve public trust... It can also further undermine public trust as more precious funds are spent on meeting regulatory requirements rather than being spent on the front line. So regulation's a great stick, but it's also binary. You either comply or you don't. So if we have regulation pushing us so far and there's a recognition that we need to go a little bit further, we have to look at good governance practice to see what carrots there are to encourage us all to be better and do better in governance terms. And I'm glad to say that many of those carrots are coming from the sector. So something I'm very proud of and have been involved with since its inception in 2003 is the Charity Governance Code. And the current 2017 version reflects some of the charity failures that we were experiencing back in 2015. So issues around fundraising. But also we took a longer view and looked at what had gone on in the banking crisis and corporate failures in the non-charity sector. And we realised that boardroom behaviours is just as important as having the right architecture in place in terms of policies and procedures. So we think we were quite innovative in introducing the importance of boardroom behaviours in a charity governance code. Other sector-specific things that have come from around the sector... 
the Charity Commission researched or funded some research called Taken on Trust, which was just looking at the role of trustees, who were trustees, where were they coming from, the time that they gave. And it was brilliant that we found that we have 700,000 trustees giving their time willingly to, to administer and lead 160,000 registered charities. Unfortunately, it also found that two-thirds of trustees are men, and the average age is between 55 and 64. And I think the most interesting or the funniest um, fact that came out of that was there are more trustees called John <laughs> than there are women <laughs> on board. <laughs> and it's interesting that David mentioned Twitter because somebody was talking about the makeup of local councillors in England and Wales, and also found that the most popular name for a councillor in England and Wales was actually John. I don't know what's happening there. That is a research thesis all of its own. <laughs> We've also been looking internally at diversity in the boardroom, and I talk about diversity in its wide, widest sense. So not just the differences that are plainly visible, but the ones you have to dig at a little bit more. So introverts and extroverts tackle problems in different ways. And you want right-brain-sided thinkers as well as left-brain-sided thinkers because, again, you tackle problems in very different ways. So diversity is great, but think about it in a very, very broad way when you're looking at your boards. But there is the argument that we should, as boards, better reflect the communities that we serve. And some of the things that have taken off in our sector in England and Wales is the Young Trustee Movement, specifically focusing younger people to get on boards and also more to get fame and people of colour onto the board to be more representative of the people who are there to help. Research has also found that there's lots of support out there for trustees and quite a lot of it is free. You don't have to pay lots of money. But most trustees either look to the regulator for their guidance or for their friends. So we've got a better job to do to explain what's out there and signpost people to find the help that they want, whatever kind of governance problem that is. Also, in reflection of what happened with Oxfam and the other aid agencies, we've got the National Council for Voluntary Organisations set up their ethical principles. And it was very much the feeling that... <coughs> You can have the Nolan principles for people in public office, but actually we needed ethical principles for everyone that worked in a charity. It's all right if one part of the charity is actually displaying those ethics and those principles, but if another part isn't, then it undermines all the work that you're doing as a charity and can harm the sector more widely. And finally, the Association of Chief Executives in Voluntary Organisations has started a number of campaigns around diversity in the Chief Executive Talent Pipeline, and also about welfare for their staff, so looking at bullying issues and workload for the chief executive. I do also think that there should be something about workload for trustees. So all of this goes to raising that perennial question that we get around, is charity governance fit for purpose? And with that comes the issue of professionalisation of trustees. Personally... I think professionalism is a state of mind. You don't volunteer to be a trustee to do a really rubbish job. You want to give your best as best as you can. And I don't think voluntary necessarily equates to amateur. We have the issue of unitary boards and whether the chief exec should also be trustees. That's quite divisive. 
and it can get quite heated. So I'm just going to leave that one there because I want to get out alive. We also have the ongoing debate about if we paid trustees, would we get a better class of governance? Would we get enhanced diversity? Would we get people who read board packs before they attended meetings? Probably not looking at the corporate sector, but... <laughs> Research into paying governors in FE colleges in Northern Ireland found that it improved presenteeism but it didn't really do an awful lot for improving governance. And if we're going to pay trustees, then you've got the whole issue of how the public's going to react to that. And then the bigger issue of if you find yourself in front of the court, they are going to hold you to a higher standard, and quite rightly so. So we have to think about that really carefully. We also have to look at how we recruit our trustees. Patting our friends on the back and having a quiet word isn't good enough. And we have to think about the messaging that we use to fish in bigger pools. Research in the sports sector, where they have a mandatory code where they've got to have at least a third of male and female gender on the board, they were saying, oh, we're just going to have an advert and say we're reserving this position for a female. And the women in the audience going, I don't want to be that woman. I want to be appointed on merit, not because of the XY chromosomes that I may happen to have or not. So it's really important that we think about how we recruit and the messages that we give in getting the audience that we want interested in our, our trusteeship. And if we're talking about whether charity governance is fit for purpose, we have to look at the downside and the pressure that's coming onto trustees. The time commitment is increasing. How many of us have been told when we've been appointed as trustees, it's only four meetings a year, won't take much time. We lie with the best of intentions and we break that social contract by not being honest and upfront. There are increased regulatory demands and with the Charity Commission being able to remove trustees more easily, that can have a big impact on any other public sector work that you do. If you're a local councillor or a non-executive director in a public body, you could also be removed from that position too. So there's big impacts there. And of course we've got increased scrutiny not just from the regulators, but from our stakeholders and the wider public and the media. So I think we have to think of good governance as a spectrum. What is seen as good practice in one charity is not always the right solution for another. So as trustees, we have to think about our governance needs constantly, review them and make sure that they're fit for purpose, and strive for continuous improvement, because good governance is an enabler not a block to what we want to do as charities. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Charity Code, but I must be getting out of time soon, so a few more. The Charity Governance Code has been around since 2003, and the 2017 version we think is quite groundbreaking in some ways. Yes, the principles are not especially novel or unique. They're very similar to what you can find in any other sector. But actually, it's groundbreaking in the terms that we put in a rationale to explain why good governance was important for charities. We put in key outcomes to look out for in your organisation to demonstrate that good governance is having an impact. And we also had a range of recommended practice so that charities could implement the spirit of the code, if not the letter of the code. And the feedback has generally been positive. RSM, which is an auditing practice in the UK, did some research looking at a number of charities and their adoption of the code. And they found that 44% mentioned the code in their annual report, something you could be looking at. 
And it found that those that adopted their code and stated that they'd adopted the code had a 10% advantage point in governance terms over those charities that weren't reporting against the code. However, research also highlighted that charities were really struggling with this idea of diversity and also integrity, which I find really interesting. So last week in our Trustees Week, the steering group of the Charity Governance Code launched a soft consultation to look at some of those issues that really needed to be changed now with a revised edition in 2020 and some longer-term issues that could be introduced in a fundamental overhaul in 2023. So specific issues that we think need addressing now are around the issue of the diversity principle. Should it just be diversity? Should it be diversity and inclusion? Should it be diversity, equality and inclusion? And then also, what practical guidance can we put in there to help people deal with this and navigate those issues? We need to be more overt about what safeguarding requirements there are and what good practice looks like. And we also need to be better at signposting to other sources of information to help implement good governance. Future needs highlighted include better sections around boardroom behaviours and how to improve boardroom behaviours. Also around organisational culture and the board's role in shaping and monitoring that culture. Digital and cyber is an ongoing risk and it's always going to increase. And we've also got a debate about the role of climate change and sustainability and what the board's role is in those discussions. We need to better reflect the nuanced balance of leadership roles between the chair and the chief exec. It's a bit of a blunt force in the code at the moment. And there's an ongoing issue in the UK around conflicts of interest and loyalty around charities that have partnerships with non-charitable bodies and how you report those. So I personally hope that this consultation is going to make the code sufficiently robust to help charities future-proof themselves against the next media scandal. I do not want to see charities on the front page or the radio in the first thing in the morning being accused of what not. I would rather than be there saying, look at us, we're doing some really fantastic work and being celebrated. But unfortunately, the climate in which charities operate has changed and the public are certainly more sceptical than they used to be. So lessons learnt. Governance thinking has moved on. It's no longer about policies and procedures, it's about people, personalities and behaviours. Policies and procedures will always constitute an essential aspect of good governance, but they have to be balanced by an appropriate level of focus and attention on the behaviours and the culture that we want to be seen to be demonstrating. The board should be asking not just whether a planned action is legal, but whether it is ethical and fits in with our stakeholders' expectations of us as an organisation. Good governance does not work in a vacuum, and therefore the strong disinfectant of sunshine needs to be included in our governance thinking. And that means better, more effective accountability and transparency. Telling your story as to what it is that you do, why you do it, and how you're making a difference is as true for the boardroom as it is for the front line. We need to be better at communicating our impact, and our annual reports is one way that we could do that. We don't have to just stick to the bread and butter of the SORP says this, the charity financial accountants say that, but actually telling the story of the positive impact you have made, because that's what really people are interested in. They're not going to give you extra 10 euros because your financial accounts look really standard. They want to know what you're 
doing, what impact, what positive change you're having. We should be proud of that, and we should be upfront about that. And we need to be better at pushing our narrative and our version of events when the press accuses us of something that isn't right. So the recent charity scandal involving the RNLI and the outrage that some of its funds are spent on teaching people to swim in different parts of the country is probably a lesson that we can all draw some really useful examples and ideas from. Yes, the charity did lose a number of donors, but by countering the media's story with a strong narrative of their vision, of their founder's vision of what they were set up to do, and the fact that it would never disguise that it spent money on these things, and were open about the proportion of funds that were spent overseas, it was easier for them to attract a lot of social media positivity. And as a result of that, they got some new donors that they probably wouldn't have got otherwise. I think it's one of those opportunities where trustees need to be brave, but also consistent with their messaging and being transparent about what they do and how they do it. So governance is not one size fits all. It has to be proportionate and it has to be fit for purpose for your organisation in its stage of life. And when you think you've just got your governance nailed, something will go wrong and you have to think again. It's not a destination. It is something that you have to constantly keep looking at. Ultimately, great outcomes start with good governance. And rather than seeing governance as red tape, it should be viewed as a virtuous circle that helps charities better assist the communities they're there to serve. If good governance was easy, we wouldn't have awards like we're having tonight. If other sectors were better at governance than charities, then we wouldn't have front page headlines of the latest scandal in whatever sector that might be. If good governance was binary, then we wouldn't have the opportunity to learn, adapt, develop, evolve, and get better. And without awards events like this, we wouldn't be able to celebrate the hard work and the benefits that governance provides. So nominees, winners, and all involved in the sector should be thanked for the work that they put in to help society. It's the selflessness of trustees, volunteers, and charity staff that make the sector so vibrant, individuals so valued, and the future so hopeful. Thank you, and well done, everybody. And look at that for timekeeping. Um, that was excellent, and I'm so glad that we've recorded that. Some fantastic insights, and it's good to, uh, in a way, to recognise that the issues and the challenges are no different in England and Wales than they are in Ireland. So the things that we're discussing and trying to tease out are very, very similar issues. So again, it's it's great to hear. It's reassuring, and but it's also sense that there is a lot of good work going on. Thank you for listening to our latest Carmichael Governance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, it would be of great benefit to us if you could give it a rating, as that helps to create greater awareness of these podcasts. So until the next time, Slán Gofold.